Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. This week, associate editor Christina Che talks with Nick Sharma. Uh, Nick is the writer of A Brown Table, a website he started seven years ago to record his Indian-leaning recipes. He has a column in the San Francisco Chronicle, and he just published his first cookbook, Season. And it was Bon Appetit's first pick for its new cookbook club, which we launched this month. And if you want to read more about our cookbook club and hopefully start your own, we've got an article on BA.com, also known as BonAppetit.com, called We're Starting a Cookbook Club and So Can You. Uh, So go check it out. All right, now let's do this. Here is Christina with Nick Sharma. Hi, Nick. Hi. Uh, it's so it's so funny and weird to like see your face now for the first time because it feels like I've been reading your words and looking at your photos and cooking your recipes for like the past month and a half. So it's very nice to see your face in the flesh. Likewise, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Um, so, like we've been talking about, you know, so much of why I've been going really deep on your beautiful new book season is because it is the subject of our very first cookbook club, which. Um, for anyone who's interested in learning about it, we have a whole blog post about it on the site and instructions for how you can start your own cookbook club. But basically, this book really struck me. And, you know, I, I mean, as you know, it's like sure. it's October right now. So my desk is completely right. covered with books. I don't know. <laughs> did you see that when we were walking by? I did. It was kind of ex- exciting to look at that whole stack. Yeah, I'm yeah. just like drowning <laughs> in books right now. So, um, and that's something that happens every year, I'm right. sure, as you right. know. And I don't know what the philosophy is like for, you know, when you're thinking about when you want to publish, like, do you want to go in right in the gates, like in the high season? You know, um, no. Because... <laughs> This was my. This is my first book, right? And so I'm kind of walking in, not knowing what's going to happen. I also did not know. I'm so naive. I did not know that fall is actually like the cookbook season of the year. And you I'm, didn't have other friends who were t- who were giving you advice, Julie Tertian. I didn't ask anyone. <laughs> I didn't think it was a thing to ask. I also didn't know. I, I knew like books came out in lots during the year. There were like spring, summer, and fall. I just never paid attention to it, and I just said, "Oh, it's in fall, like October. That's a yeah, great." Because uh, I don't really pay attention to a lot of things, and I don't I don't know if that's a good thing. But um, yeah, walking in, and then um, you see all these very famous people who are really well-established writers. Um, cookbook authors, chefs who launch all their books in. So I feel like the little mouse that's kind of making his way through. <laughs> I mentioned Julia Tertian, who is a personal hero of mine, someone who's, who I've her. been following since she was writing other people's books. And she also has a book out this yes. same season yes. that's all about leftovers and reinventing mm-hmm. them, um, which is called, remind me, it is called Now, now and, and Again. again. And she, I believe, is a friend of yours, yeah? Yes, we're really good friends. I'm curious about what people have been telling you, you know, other people who have been writing books for a while have been telling you in terms of the advice that, you know, they've been giving about what to do and how to tour and, (laughs) you know. So I've heard a lot of things, and most of them were, um, you know, your first book is going to be the most exciting book of the book project that you do because it's your first. So there are a lot of firsts, and it has been. It's actually proved to be true. There have been a lot of um, exciting emotional moments along the way as the book has come out. Um, another thing I was told is um, 
you know, just have fun with it. Like even if the book does okay, um, you know, <laughs> um, just have fun with it and you know celebrate your work that you put you because I've poured in two years of my life into the book. So they said celebrate it. And the other thing was I was actually very fortunate. I worked with a publisher, an editor, a book designer that just let me do what I wanted to do, which was really exciting. And I know having had conversations with previous authors that that's not a thing that happens. So I have had a blast. This book, I feel like, is also unusual because you photographed it, you developed all the recipes, you right. wrote all of the text. You know, this whole book is is a culmination of everything. You <laughs> and like every drop of blood, sweat, and tears. Right. Uh, I mean, there were moments that I okay. So I, this, I guess, this is a funny thing. So I decided when I started the book, I was going to shoot five recipes a day, which meant I was cooking, styling, and photographing. What and time would you start? So I started at eight. I went early to the gym. I think I left. I went to the gym at 4, 4.30. Came back home and got ready. And I said, everything's organized. 4.30 Yeah, this was my Yeah, this was my grand plan. And I said, I'm going to do it all in a week. Um, did day one, okay? So day one, <laughs> yeah, it's insane. Um, so I, I read something online that you need to have discipline when you do this. So I said, I'm going to have discipline. I don't think it sounds like you lack discipline I from did. that detail. After that day, I realized I did. And then it never happened again. Um, by recipe three, I was falling asleep. <laughs> uh, I was so exhausted. I actually lay down on the floor. Um, and I remember my, I think it was my dog or cat that came and stood over me. And I said, I, I just need to stop today. <laughs> so never again. I spread things out, learned my lesson. But um, it was fun. Because I'm in control of everything, which is kind of nice. And I've done that with the blog and my column at the newspaper, too. Um, at the San Francisco At the San Francisco Chronicle. Chronicle, yeah. So it was exciting just to get the opportunity to write, to photograph, uh, tell my story, as well as uh, cook and style the, f- shoot, uh, the recipes. So it's my point of view throughout. So I wanted to talk a little bit about how you have structured the book and also, mm-hmm. actually... I think one of the very first questions I asked you when we first spoke on the phone, you know, a month or so ago was, you know, does the season in the title of the book refer to the the passing seasons of the year or Mm -hmm. does it refer to the seasoning of your food? Which, frankly, like in retrospect, looking at the cover of Uh your beautiful hand, sprinkling cumin, toasted cumin cumin. on this beautiful cucumber salad. Um. Perhaps not the smartest question. <laughs> no, um, it's a question that I get a lot. So yes, it's a verb. It does refer to seasoning your food, but it's also metaphorical, where it's referring to the seasons in my life, because I grew up as an immigrant, and then I also came out when I came to America, and so it's all those different aspects that I experienced. So those were the seasons in that my life that kind of shaped the way I cook, and that's reflected throughout the book. Right. And so the way that you've, I mean, I think you've told me this before, but there is kind of a spectrum of the, I guess, like the difficulty of the recipes that you have in the book in right. terms of, um, you know, like the like the salad on the cover of the book, right. for example, is actually one of the simplest recipes you'll right. find in the entire book. Right. But it's a really beautiful introduction into the act of toasting your spices before right. you use them to season. Sure something as simple as a cucumber mm-hmm. salad. Was that something that you had to think about a lot in terms of the difficulty levels and the approachability of different recipes throughout the book? So I feel like I've been trained for a really long time now writing the blog, writing the column to expect what people want in a book. 
also what they want from the column because I'm constantly interacting with them when they cook recipes and they come back with questions. So I've been able to also gauge their level of skills. And it's very broad. It's, it goes from people who are novices wanting to start out to people who have really high levels of um, kitchen skills. And so the book, for me, I wanted to write a book that was approachable for everyone. So you could start off with something that you're familiar with, like in this case, the cumin, which I feel like most families own them now. Uh, my husband's family is from... Um, like the South, rural South, on the border of Virginia, North Carolina, and you can get cumin and coriander out there now. So it's not like an unknown spice. And so I said, why not put those components in a much easier format for people who are starting out? And then each section kind of builds on those elements. So not only do you learn the techniques, and I always come from a home cook's perspective. This is what a home cook should do. It's I'm a lazy cook too, so the approach needs to be a little bit lazy. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I am all about sitting on the couch, maybe reading a book, watching TV. And if I can, you know, make something quick, fast, and easy, I'm all about it. The one thing that I don't compromise on is flavor. I can't live a life without flavor. <laughs> I feel it's just so boring. And so I want to do that through food. And one way to do it was this book where I would start out with something like the salad where all the only skill effort you need is to toast and grind cumin. Right. It's interesting that you use the term lazy because I think within the context of spices, at least I'm speaking for myself. Sure. So this cumin and cucumber salad recipe that we keep coming back to, which is on the cover, calls for, it actually calls for you to toast whole cumin seeds. Right. Which is actually, I feel like, in a lot of people's minds, maybe even a next step up because it's like, why would I toast the seeds right. and crush them when I could just use, you know, ground cumin or, you know, right. something like that. And I, I wonder if that is something that, like, feels truly elemental to you, you know, where it's like, okay, using the whole seeds and mm -hmm. toasting them and taking the time to do that stuff is only going to take you a couple of extra minutes. Right. And it is... It's actually a couple of seconds. A couple of seconds. Right. <laughs> but will will make all the difference. It does. And I think that's one of the things I did with the book, too. I included also... So one of the things I did to make life easy for a home cook, one, uh, one of the problems I... Well, not problems. It was one of the questions that kept coming up when I started writing my column at the San Francisco Chronicle because I'm allowed to do what I want there. I started to notice that people were unfamiliar with certain ingredients. They may have read about it, but they didn't know what it was visually. And so for the book, I created a um, spice glossary, if you will. Oh, it's, it's in the front of the book, Yeah. Right? And so it's, it's a... It's beautiful. Thank you. So it's a grid... Uh, for a couple of pages with basically a short sentence on what the spice is or the flavor ingredient. And so people have a visual guide because I feel photos these days just speak much more stronger. People remember things better that way. And so I feel you could be confident enough if you're familiar with the photos in the book on this grid. You can literally walk into a store. You won't have to ask for help and say, this is what fennel and cumin look like, even though they look similar when they're not kept together put them together and they look different. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing in the book we d I did was I put two instructional chapters, but from the point of a home cook's view. These, are, these include the techniques, uh, like grinding, toasting, and why. So in this case, in the salad, the toasting is important because the whole cumin seeds, it changes the flavor profile. It pulls the essential oils out when you heat it. And when you grind it, it kind of, again, makes it much, it may, brings it into a more of a powder form, which makes it permeate better into the cucumbers in this case. Right, right. So I have I have two questions, I guess. Sure. One is, you know, as you've been publishing these recipes and you're 
up in your right. column in the paper, and you know you've been doing the blog for seven years at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about what are some of the things that people have gravitated towards and other things that people are just like, you know, I'm never going to do this or, sure. you know, it's just like, where do I even find this? What is this? Sure. So one of the cool things that I've been able to do is kind of introduce new things from that I grew up in India with. So like Jaggery, for example, I've been slowly introducing it to people through the column. Oh, right. Which we talked about. Because yeah. you love because of that ice cream. Right. The book, yeah. The jaggery ice cream. And so I started introducing a lot of the flavors kind of before even the book came out just to see how people respond to things. And can you just describe really quickly what jaggery is? Because I, it was yeah. it's really cool to look at. And yeah. Um, jag- so jaggery is the most impure form of sugar in India. And it's it usually comes from sugarcane juice when they extract it or from palm juice, which usually in India comes from coconut. And it comes in this, it comes in this like brown sort of block. Right. So what they do is they collect the liquid and then it's heated in a large metal pan and cooked for hours. So it starts At to, home or like? They're kind of like, I would say like mom and pop establishments mostly. Like they would heat it in the pan for yeah. you? Yeah. The ones that I've seen are, but I'm sure there are large scale production facilities too at the um, like sugarcane um, plantations in India. Um, so the, it's allowed to evaporate. And as it evaporates, it starts to concentrate. It's also not purified sugar. So you have a lot of other things that are in there. So there's a lot of potassium um, and all these other salts and minerals in there, mm-hmm. which kind of gives it a mineral taste. So even um, the amount of sugar that you're consuming when you eat is actually less than you would refined sugar for the same amount, right? And it also adds um, a really nice subtleness to desserts. And it adds flavors. like. I know sometimes, I've worked as a pastry cook, and I know that sometimes you just cannot substitute refined sugar when you make certain things. But there are recipes in this book that... I love refined sugar. When used (laughs) in the correct things, like I have no... I I know I just like kind of whispered that, but I have no shame about that. No, I think it's fine. I think like everything in limited quantities is fine. But like if you're making certain pastries, you need the sugar to melt properly, right? And there should be no contaminants in it. Spoken from a professionally trained pastry chef (laughs) also. So FYI. Right. So I think that's one of the things I wanted to do with Jangri because I'm also looking for flavor at the end of the day. We have a lot of sugars and sweeteners that are out there that are so strong in flavor. And it would be a shame to miss out on that. And so that was one of the things I wanted to do with the book. So there is sugar in some of the recipes, obviously. But then Jangri just adds this whole element of newness to food. Okay, so one of the recipes that I made... I'm trying to think. I made it once. I mm-hmm. made it for the cookbook club. Okay. And it was the curry leaf popcorn oh, chicken. Oh, yeah. Which was, I, like, I can't <laughs> even, I can't tell you. I I ate so much <laughs> chicken. And I specifically chose that recipe, one, because I was intrigued by the fresh curry leaf. Okay. Which, I mean, it's a cool, it's a cool technique. You chop up the fresh curry leaf. You right. put it in both. The buttermilk yeah. uh, marinade that yeah. the chicken soaks in, and then you also chop up more fresh curry leaves for the flour dredge Correct. before it gets fried. Correct. So that part was intriguing to me just Correct. from the perspective of someone who hadn't really worked with fresh curry leaves. Mm-hmm. And then also, uh, for a short time, I used to be a fry cook, and I made so much popcorn chicken, and I okay. actually like got pretty decent at it. So I was just like, I'm going to like relive my fry cook days. Good and, for you. Um, I kind of forget. I mean, I kind of forget deep frying outside of like a professional kitchen where you have the two fryer baskets and, you know, it's just you have everything equipped right. for deep frying is right. very different. But 
anyway. The the curry leaf, for example, was something that I even in New York I had like a little bit of trouble finding. Okay. Yeah, I'm just like curious about things like that. Where you know what, like how do you feel about you know seeking out fresh curry leaf versus sure. using dried? It does make a big difference to the recipe. So one of the things about cur- so I have my own tree now that grows in my backyard in Oakland. Oh yeah, I remember you told me that. Yeah. So didn't I'll- it take you like five years to? So I. When we moved to California, I found a store that had a plant, got one, and then I basically acclimated it to the weather in California. Uh, But in the south of the country, so I just came back from New Orleans, uh, it has a large Indian population. Um, Most of the south where Indian people are, they usually, because of the high humidity, the plant does really well. Mm. All of them have curry leaves growing in their backyards or front yards. So I don't think it's that much of a problem in the South. If you meet someone who's Indian, you could probably just ask them for some. Um, Also, all Indian grocery stores will carry them in fresh leaves, sealed in plastic bags. You can keep them up for like maybe four to five days in your refrigerator as long as they keep damp. Can you freeze them? I've actually tested this. So I've tried, but the leaves start to change color Mm -hmm. because I think it's too cold for them. They're not, they just don't hold pigmentation dies. Um, And then the other thing is that when that happens, it doesn't fry very well. Mm. Because it's already, it's not freeze burn, but it's already dehydrated. Right. And so it burns faster in oil. So I don't think it's worth it. I've tried also just drying my own and testing that when it comes to just like for the oil, maybe it's just not the same. I feel like fresh is just much more potent. This is one of those ingredients where I wouldn't compromise too much. And if you live in New York, I know several people that actually grow them in their homes. Oh, cool. First yeah. and last names, please. Uh, Tejal Rao had one. <laughs> Tejal Rao R. from R. the New York Tejal. Times. Well, she's gone now, right? She, I think she took it with her. Well, <laughs> does fair, does little good for me now, unfortunately, but good news for her new friends in L.A. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about some of the recipes in the book, mostly because I was very fortunate to get to eat them. Okay. Because other people on staff made them, and I thought they were incredible. Thank you. Can we talk about these lamb and potato chops, which I thought, like, I just thought it was such a cool method, and Uh it was, you know, I think chops are just, like, something that were, you know, it was just, like, a new food item for a lot of people who were eating them at this dinner that we had. Right. But yeah, it's it seems like there's you have some history with yeah. So when I came to America, I saw a very standardized Indian menu, and then I realized all these things that I grew up with weren't being written about or talked about. So I said, I'm going to talk about that stuff that no one's writing about. Um, and so this is one of those recipes that's from my mom's side of the family. My mom's going, so she comes from a culture that it's highly influenced by the Portuguese uh, colonialists at the time. Right. And uh, this is one of those dishes from that culture and. It's, it's comfort food and it's best. And I feel every culture in every con- part of the world, they have a mashed potato or like a potato and meat kind of dish. Sure. Right? Even in the here we do that. And um, we do that in India too with these, they're called potato chops and I don't know why. No one, I've asked everyone and no one knows why. They're called, like you would just refer to them as potato, potato chops. Potato chops. Like you could go to a store and ask for potato chops. I feel like I have to like describe this, I have to like describe what I am looking at. It's just, it's so cool. You basically, so you like mash potatoes. Right, you season them, you mash them, and then you cook meat, ground meat separately. And you, I've used lamb in the book, but of course you can use any, like you could even use ground tofu, just season it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once everything is cool enough to handle, you basically spread like a couple of tablespoons of mashed potatoes in your hand, put 
a little bit like a, maybe a generous tablespoonful or more of the meat filling in the center. And then you add a little more potato and make a ball. And then you flatten it a little bit. You so are... it's like a putt, like a hockey putt. It's like... Right? <laughs> I thought you were going to say hot pocket because I was going to say hot oh. pocket. <laughs> but, right. And then after you have this like beautiful little meat-filled mashed potato puck thing, right? then you, br- you fry it. Yeah, you so you, uh, you bread it a little bit. And then you just and the fry it because everything's already cooked. So you really don't need to overcook anything. And then it gets crispy and golden brown. Bring it outside and eat it. It's, I mean, it was so it's, delicious. This is something that whenever I go back to Bombay, that's what I eat. And as a kid, when my mom would make them, I would eat them as they came off. I think a couple of people made this over the weeks. And the process was actually quite fast. It is, yeah. I mean, I think the, only, the longest thing to do is to wait for the potatoes to boil. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have, I mean, the last thing I have to talk about in terms of recipes is the sweet potato babinka, uh-huh. which I know that we didn't, we didn't publish the recipe for that, but the Times did. Yes. So if you don't have a copy of the book already, you can go to the New York Times website. The recipe for sweet potato babinka is up there. Mm-hmm. And can you just like describe what this is? So babinka is a dish that came by the Portuguese when they um, conquered Goa. And then you also get babinka in the Philippines. It's very different, but the concepts are similar. So in Goa, there are two types of babinka. There's a layered kind of um, pancake kind of one that's a little more complicated to make. So I avoided that in the book because I want things to be fun and simple. There's another one that I make a lot at home, and that was, it's called a mock babinka, which is usually made with potatoes, uh, nutmeg, and coconut milk, and a lot of egg yolks. Uh And so I kind of went to the recipe that my grandmother had in her book and just cut back a lot of the fat, the eggs, and the sugar, and then made this, which is... I would hope people would start making this at Thanksgiving and fall because I use sweet potatoes. I love sweet potatoes, the color that they give. Um, and then it has a bit of maple syrup, too, in there. So it's very fallish. Yeah, it's it's everything. It's like a custardy. Yeah, it's like the pie. Sweet potato-y. It's know, like a pie without the crust. Yeah. And you, frankly, as a crust lover, like you, you don't need it. You don't. You absolutely don't. Because it has flour in it a little bit to give it a structure. But um, it's the easiest thing to do. You just... Mix it all together, stick it in the oven, do it the night before so it sets mm-hmm. in the fridge. And you said you usually make this for Thanksgiving. I do. I mean, I've made it throughout the year, but Thanksgiving is uh, is the excuse. <laughs> <laughs> um, looking at this recipe now actually reminds me of something that you and I have spoken about before. There's a little bit of turmeric in here. And right. <laughs> I, I know you're like giving me this look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and perhaps you already know what, what I... know I, where we're going with this. We're going with this. <laughs> well, I just think it's interesting. And I think it's hard to have a conversation about um, foods that, you know, we... I feel like I'm just even trying to figure out how to phrase this. But, you know, it's like we've talked about um, how problematic it can be to refer to foods that you know fall outside the canon of what we're familiar with sure. as exotic or I know you particularly are not really into the phrases like traditional or authentic and mm-hmm. um, but the turmeric thing is interesting to me. Turmeric I feel has become the poster child for exoticism right now and there's nothing wrong with with turmeric there's like turmeric's not actually the bad guy. It's the way the it's being marketed, right? right. And like to sp- and and so to clarify, basically like you're seeing all of these very 
high end, not out like not from right India, right brands, I suppose that are peddling right. like all kinds of turmeric milks and turmeric. Right. I mean, I grew up. I remember when I was sick, my dad would say, "You need to have a glass of turmeric milk." I thought it was the most disgusting thing, and he also, I think, thinks it is the most disgusting <laughs> thing. But it was maybe once in a while. It's like I feel like it's not like the thing you like treat yourself yeah, to for five dollars at like the corner. Yeah, it's not wellness it's, cafe. Like in India, you're taught that term, raw turmeric is unpleasant by itself. That's why you heat it before to mellow the flavor. Otherwise, it's because so the other thing with turmeric is it also has a lot of starch. It's a root at the end of the day, so it's rich with starch. And when you add it to milk, when you boil it, it starts to thicken the milk and add the color and everything. But there's also a pungency to turmeric, a very notice to raw turmeric, sorry. Um, so you have to heat it to mellow. But I see people just adding raw turmeric like it's salt mm. in dishes. And it's overpowering to the point where you can feel sick just from the smell because it's so strong. And I was always taught that turmeric should either be used as a food coloring agent when you cook, or you'll notice a lot of Indian curries are reddish in color. Mm-hmm. Um, that's because one of the ingredients is turmeric. And you add chilies and stuff like that. So those are all like the pigments that are just building off each other. So curcumin is the pigment in turmeric. And then it's true that in India they do use turmeric for wound, like for wounds and st- cuts and scratches, and it does have a certain capacity. Oh, is that like a topical yeah. treatment? Yeah, and so that it does have a capacity for antimicrobial effects, but it's not to the point where it's magically going to be an elixir to make keep you young or save you from all sorts of things. <laughs> I mean, I feel like there were studies that did that on saffron too, for a while. Yeah, but can you imagine? Saffron is another ingredient where a little bit goes a long way. It's also really gets really pungent, fast. And can you imagine someone eating that much amount of saffron to cure a sickness? <laughs> it's too expensive to begin with, and they'll probably get sick from that amount. Right. So I think these are like kind of really like practical things that should actually be addressed, because to be honest, there's no magical cure for everything, right? And sure, food does heal us in its own way, but I think... The, you know, there should be logic and practicality when talking about these things. And the, it can be framed better. And I think it, you know, it's something that we have perhaps touched upon in the past where, you know, whose, respons- whose responsibility is it mm-hmm. to do the research and craft the message? Right. Um, how does that shift when it is an ingredient that is not of one's own culture right? Um, where you don't have a history and you're going into it. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that too, when you're going into it for profit, I, I feel like it's a whole other thing. It's maybe a for, maybe for an, a different podcast, right. <laughs> not the food podcast, but I just feel like you have a, you've had this thing about turmeric and I feel like I just wanted. It's irritated me quite a bit because I see it everywhere, but I feel it's being, it should get its attention. I'm not saying it shouldn't, but it should be done correctly. Right, like people. And you use it in the book. Yeah, I'm not saying I don't use it. I just don't use kilograms of turmeric in a day, <laughs> right? <laughs> Even so, when my mother visit, visits from India, she lives in Bombay, and so when she comes to visit and she sees turmeric lattes at like stores, she says, "Wow, it's really that popular!" <laughs> and so she's in shock, coming from a land that uses that much turmeric. But I feel like kind of like addressing the inequalities in where these ingredients or these recipes are coming from and kind of maybe uh, giving sharing success with people from those countries kind of giving them their due course is an important thing to do 
Another thing I would say is as a consumer, the information is already out there. You could just go literally to PubMed, which is the NIH uh, database, public database, and they have textbooks up there. You just type in what you want and you'll get the information. Right. I think consumers are intelligent and they have the resources, especially in this country, to go out and get them, the information, and then make a conscious choice. It's not my job to tell you what to eat. And that's one of the things with the book also. I'm not really interested in diets, special diets, so I really don't talk about them. That's not my specialty. Um, and so I come from the point of this is what you like to cook or you like to eat, then go ahead and make this. This is I'm really interested in flavor, so I come from that approach. Right. The rest of all that I think is up to the consumer, honestly, and then the people who are experts in the field to kind of share the information and kind of train them right. to be better consumers. I guess I agree with you up to a point. I, do, I mean, I do. Well, you don't agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think that, you know, there's there's just so much that's out there. You know, I mean, I was just having a conversation actually with one of our uh, contributing writers, Priya Krishna. Uh-huh. I don't know if you guys have met. We've never met, but we've corresponded. Um, she's awesome. And so we, we were having this very interesting conversation about this brand of ghee okay. that um, a couple of people in the test kitchen and I are like we've been really into for okay. a couple of years. It's okay. called Ancient Organics. Okay. And Priya like slacked me the other day and she was just like, I don't understand what all the fuss is about. Ancient organics. She was like, no real Indian person uses this. She was like, they all use this other one that comes in a can. Just was a conversation about the narratives that get, the narratives that get dispersed. And I do really think it matters, you know, who is talking about what things. And Well, it's marketing too, right? So the prettier the package, your eyes are always going to be attracted to that. Yeah, and it's like a beautiful, yeah, it's a beautiful Um, jar. And the Indian brands actually haven't really they are available here, but they haven't actually had the opportunity or they maybe haven't invested in kind of pursuing the market like other brands do. Um, and I think that's something that if they wanted to make like a dent, then they would need to do that. But like something like ghee, I actually don't know any Indian people that actually go buy ghee. Oh, they go, oh you mean they make it in the They house. make it in their house. Because um, again, it's not used every day. Uh, the second thing is that, at least with the Indian people that I, I know, think I knew that. Like my mom uses ghee occasionally. Okay. Um, like when would she? When would she use it? So if she's making, uh, so there's a type of bread called paratha, which is a flaky flatbread. You basically, it's kind of like making a puff pastry. The concept is the same. So you have. You're like laminating. You're kind of laminating sort of. a little, not that much, or but you're a, you're folding over right. and over to create so it's the, kind of, the layers. Correct. And so like the, when the when it hits uh, heat the fat kind of ex- creates like a, like a bubble inside, which kind of then helps. Right, it's like the steam. Right, and combined with the moisture that's in the dough. So it's the same thing. But um, so she uses it there, maybe occasionally, like I've done in the book also to fry eggs. And what would she use? Like what would she use in her everyday? So she uses, she uses coconut oil more as a flavoring agent. So it's not used like how, again, that's another thing like that's used so extensively here. But she uses olive oil or other forms of vegetable oil. I think she uses sunflower, mm-hmm. sunflower oil mostly because that's what's available. Or I suppose um, maybe not just necessarily her, but, you know, someone who. Right. I think that's what they use, sunflower or safflower. I can't remember properly. Mm-hmm. But that's. And um, is that because ghee is, you know, it just is a bit more labor intensive to actually go through the trouble of making? and Not really. So she does it once, I think, a month. So in India, milk is sold non-homogenized. Um, so what my mom does usually, they get the milk delivered at home, mm-hmm. um, and then the milk is boiled because they, st- even though it comes pasteurized, they still boil 
it okay. and then they let it sit. And so there are several inches of then the cream that separates as it cools and settles to the top. She skims the uh, cream off every day and then freezes it and collects it. And oh, then she freezes it. Yeah. And then what she does is uh, when she comes close to getting how much she needs, she pulls it out from the freezer. She uses a little bit of it to make butter for cakes because she likes to bake. So she'll bake a cake. How does she make the butter? Uh, basically, take the cream and churn it till the liquid, uh, till the water comes out. Does she use like? Does she have like a, a churner? Or? She has a. Um, she uses a hand mixer, like an electric hand mixer. Yeah, yeah, that's what she uses. And because uh, she doesn't have a stand mixer, she doesn't need one. Doesn't cook enough. <laughs> doesn't need one. Um, and then the rest of the stuff is actually just cooked on the stove and till the water evaporates mm-hmm. and completely comes out and the mi- milk solids are left behind. And then she strains that and then stores it in different bottles. Um, and ghee lasts forever. That's the other thing, because the sugar is removed, the lactose is removed. You have the moisture that's removed. And for some reason, it just lasts for months. This feels much more, that, that was a lot more intensive than... So you could start with butter. Right. Right. And so that's what I did with the book. You can just buy sticks of butter, put them on the stove, and then just let it melt. And that takes about, I want to say, maybe less than 20 minutes. Uh, and I, that's like a shortcut. That's my shortcut instead of starting with cream and going through Because I also don't have the time to do that. <laughs> but it's, again, it's like one of those things that's actually would cost you maybe $2 to make at home. And then... I can't even tell you how much it's that is. I think it's like 15 is. like oh, 11 no. or 15 depending on where you go. Oh, more? Oh, wow. Okay. Cheaper on Amazon, <laughs> as is everything. Anyway... Mm-hmm. So, I guess to wrap, there was something that I wanted to go back and revisit, which is your particular sort of issue with the way we use the, the terms traditional slash authentic right. slash exotic, which we've kind of mm-hmm. already talked about. Sure. And, um, but it, it, it was an interesting thing. I feel like you told me specifically when you were writing this book that you were trying very hard to leave these particular words traditional Right. And authentic. Right. Sort of out of the, the right. text. And like, why is that? Okay. So I think this comes <laughs> to like the. <laughs> okay. Uh, so when I was in grad school for genetics, one of the things we were always taught about was never to say two words belief, because science isn't a faith. And we would get corrected all the time or get like loose points on our papers. Or and the second thing was never to say anything is true. Because in reality, nothing is true. You're always getting closer to the truth. And so I think because of that, it's always been in my mind. And I kind of applied that to food writing. Um, There is no thing as traditional or authentic, right? Because a recipe that I have today that was handed down to me by my mother or my grandmother was probably handed down to them by their mothers or grandmothers and so on. And along the way... It has changed over time. The ingredients are definitely not the same because ingredients, like even vegetables, have evolved so much from when they were maybe like a century ago. The type of heat that's used for cooking has changed, right? Now we're in the phase of we're kind of moving towards electric and induction quite a bit. Right. Uh, Gas is slowly going away. And so all of these things do make a difference. And if you're thinking of, this is one of the things why I love cooking because even the way I write a recipe is the way I used to write my experiments. You start with the ingredients of the buffer and it's the same technique of writing. And so I look at it that way, like every recipe is an experiment essentially. So every time each generation is repeating an experiment, it is different essentially. So you can't say it is traditional or authentic because if it's authentic, that means it has to be 100% accurate and a complete replica of what it was before. 
It's never going to be that. Even the people making it are different, right? Um, so I don't agree with that philosophy. Tradition, I do not like that word because I feel it binds people quite a bit. It's like a chain that holds you down because then you're so tied up to what you want to define as tradition without keeping an open mind about what the possibilities are. And I feel life is so short and I want to experience flavor, not only like enjoy the culture that I grew up with, but also the culture that's now my adopted home, um, America. And so I'm trying, you know, I want to taste and enjoy and experience everything. So I'm bringing everything in together for me to enjoy. And hopefully people like that. And that's, I think that's where tradition kind of becomes a wall or a barrier just, you know, for people just to jump over because you're so focused on what it should be versus what it could be. Did you feel like you got any pressure from people as you were working on this book to fit into a... Not at all. Not at all. And, and that's what I, I think like when I started my blog, which was my first exposure to food writing and the whole world of this, it's like, I call it a crazy, amazing world. But um, that was my platform to kind of just do that. And that's what I've always wanted to talk about was these two worlds that are colliding together for me. And I'm doing that through food, kind of like making my way through. Um, and it's neither here, it's, it's neither in India, it's neither in America, but it is also in both in its own way. Um, and so I've never felt the pressure once I started becoming, um, you know, just people started appreciating what I was doing. And so I've never felt the pressure, even while writing the book, it never came up once that, oh, you should include something. Um, so yeah, it's it's great to kind of have that platform to do what I want. Okay, I wanna close with three recipe recommendations from okay. you, things that you feel like are kind of emblematic of what you were going for with this book. Okay. Um, definitely make the roasted paneer salad, which is also at the New York Times. It's a fun way to kind of look at paneer because traditionally paneer has always been used in curries and stews. Actually, <laughs> someone who was at our cookbook club dinner made that. And okay. she, you know, she did the whole thing. She made the paneer. Okay. It was like incredible. The paneer, oh, good. you know, even as it roasted, it just kind of like when you bit into it, it was right. still sort of soft and, and tender and... Yeah, it Delicious. holds it structurally well and on heat. And then you have like the lentils and the cauliflower. Yeah, I think that's like a perfect fall salad because that's where we're going now and even into winter. Uh, the second thing I would strongly recommend is the chocolate chip hazelnut cookies. Also add that. Okay, good. Because <laughs> that's a really simple recipe. The only thing that you'll have to get is jaggery. But if you can't find jaggery, use uh, a really good dark brown sugar with a strong flavor profile. And what makes it spicy is the ginger and the black pepper. Right. Well, and remind me, that recipe, oh, right. It calls for hazelnut meal. It, yeah, because I really like Nutella. That was one of the things when I moved to the country. I said, oh, my gosh, Nutella is so good. <laughs> and so I said, how do we make something that's, boom, Nutella, but without the Nutella inside? And hazelnut flour kind of fit the bill. Okay. And if uh, if you can't find hazelnut flour? You could use almond. Okay. Um, any kind of nut flour would work in this recipe. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then your last one. Uh, so we did sweet, we did savory, and I guess for the meat lovers, I would recommend either the uh, lamb chops with the lentils. which The red lentils. Yeah. Or you could also just do the grilled pork chops with, if you have a grill, I know it's winter, some people have access and some don't, but the grilled pork chops is a really nice way to use the chaat masala seasoning, which is in the book too. We also ate that. Okay. <laughs> and that's, I found, was a very surprising, when I was working on the book, that was a really surprising flavor combination and worked well with pork. And it also comes with that sort of delicious uh, red pepper. The piquillo peppers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's kind you of You just like buy a... them in a jar and toss them, chop right. them and chop. Yeah, toss and chop. 
Uh, well, it seems like I've already eaten this entire book, but I'm excited to go back and cook even more from it. Thank um, you. I'm so thanks. glad you enjoyed it. Thanks, Nick. Thank you for having me today. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.